If you've uh, been around the last few weeks, I hope you've enjoyed uh, looking at this psalm uh, together. I hope you've felt a deeper awareness of God's goodness in your life or a deeper awareness of the goodness of the God that we worship here. If you're maybe not yet a believer, but you're coming along, you're looking in and you're hearing about him and you're thinking, this does sound good. Well, we're going to look at some more of that goodness today. As elders, we wanted to do this preaching series because we felt really it's just been a season in which people need encouragement. And people need encouragement specifically about God's goodness. I don't want to be like, it's been a hard few years, but, you know, cheer up, things will get better. I don't think that necessarily is the case. And it's not actually what Christians base their hope in. We want to base our hope in God. And so we wanted to bring your attention to this preaching series again and again and again to the goodness of God. Sometimes we forget it. Sometimes we doubt it. Again, if you're not a Christian, you would just like, I just don't believe that at all. But we've looked at this psalm and, it, and all the ways in which it describes God's goodness to his people. He's our shepherd, it says. And we see that that is a full-time job. That's not an occasional involvement. He's aware, and he's at work all the time. And we are sheep, <coughs> which is perhaps less exciting. That is a, that's a humbling reality to be told you're one of the most famously not brave, not smart, not strong animals. What that does, it takes to a place where we put all our hope in God and not in ourselves. We're told that he loves to provide for us. Not just obligated, but he loves to do it. And that he stays with us and brings us through even the hardest times. And even when we face opposition, that will not stop him from doing us good. And the ultimate expression of all of this love is him sending his son, Jesus, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep by which our souls may be restored. And the final verse will pick up on uh, these themes again, and they will take us, hopefully, beyond just thinking about how today is going, and they'll fix our eyes on God, and then to the hope that he provides for us. So we'll just say the psalm, because it doesn't take that long. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You provide a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, as we go through these last two lines, um, I'm going to be potentially undermining the suggestion I've made during this preaching series. This is a great psalm to memorize because I'm going to be suggesting a few alternative translations of some of the words as we go along. So all that I've just said that I worked hard to memorize, there are going to be like some footnotes add to that. And and the reason that this psalm I think has this is this is an, an old English translation that is very familiar to many people and, very, and deeply beloved by people, even its kind of rhythms and its words. And so some modern versions have to deal with a greater understanding of what those words originally meant than perhaps when that translation was made and the fact that people really like it like that. And so what they do is they, they use footnotes and they're like, or possibly this word, which is what it's used everywhere else kind of thing. Um, And so we're going to do a little bit of that um, today, not because I'm fussy, although I am, but because (laughs) 
Because there's some things in there that I really want us to see. I want us to see what's really there, what God's really saying to us in those moments and appreciate them. And we're going to just, as a kind of structure, there's kind of two times actually when David uh, talks about the days of his life. In the first half, he says, uh, goodness, mercy, you're following me all the days of my life. And then in the second half, uh, what's translated here as forever actually means for length of days. And that might seem a bit pedantic, but what's actually going on is David's talking about his whole life on earth. And he's talking about this movement in that first part. It's like wherever I'm going. And in the second part, there's a sense of, of resting. And so what God is wanting to do in these moments is, is help us to see his goodness in all of the moments of our lives, whether we're on the move or whether we're here uh, in, amongst God's people gathered together. So let's pray that God would help us to see these things and, and understand them. Lord, we do just, we, Lord, we thank you for whatever it is that we have known freshly about you this morning. Uh, or been reminded of, of your goodness, your grace to us, your kindness, your ability to redeem all things, uh, that Jesus, you died for us, rose, and now ascended on high. And Lord, we thank you, these aren't just, these aren't just abstractions. Uh, these are very present realities, and I ask you by your Holy Spirit, you'd help each one of us to be aware of them, and as I share this message, that we would be more aware of the, good, of the goodness of God in our lives and more aware of the hope that is offered to us. Amen. Amen. So let's start with David on the move, David's travels. So his story is one of the most detailed we get in the Bible. We're told loads and loads of things about his life. And because he also wrote a number of the Psalms uh, in which he's very emotional with God and very honest with God and passionate in his worship, we get real insight into kind of what happened to David and his relationship with God as those things were going on. And so there's a lot of, there's just a lot of action for us and, and David's life. So he was a shepherd himself and he would go out into the fields and beyond the fields, kind of into wilderness places with his family's flock. He would go far enough that wild animals would feel okay about attacking him because that happened in his life. One day, he's called home from being wherever he is with the sheep and he turns up at a feast that the rest of his family have organised but that he wasn't invited to and he walks in and discovers that God has called him to be Israel's next king. Another time, his movement takes him from being at home to the battlefield where there's this kind of like stalemate between Israel and their enemies, the Philistines. And then David just moves on into the battlefield and takes on the giant Goliath. He's invited to move into Saul's palace, the king. But this soon becomes a really dangerous place because Saul's jealousy gets out of control. And so David has to flee. Uh, he becomes well, basically an outlaw. He's on the run. And he's, he's just... At one point, he's being chased around a mountain. Like he's on one side and the king and the king's forces on the other. And he's like, get me out of here. He goes to nearby foreign lands where his God isn't known. Then he becomes king. And he, uh, he, what he does is he, we associate the capital city of Jerusalem with David. The reason we do is because he was the one who captured it. It was this city that everyone said, you'll never be able to get in there. And the people who were in charge of it said, you'll never be able to come in here. And the verse just says, so David took it. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place on earth where God dwelt with his people. He brings that into the city with dancing and joy in worship. And he leads his armies out to victories. And he sins terribly. 
And part of the aftermath of that is there's an uprising that's led by one of his sons that causes David to flee from Jerusalem. And he eventually returns, reinstated, but sorrowful at the death of his son. And gradually the day of his death, his final journey, comes closer. So there's loads that we know about what, where David went and what he did and what he felt about it as he did it. Now, we don't know when within all of that he wrote this particular psalm. So we don't know which of those experiences he'd already been through when he composed it. But when you know that that's his song and when you know that that's his life, it's, it can be quite easy just to kind of match different bits up with it. Look at certain parts and be like, wow, that is a green pasture. Gosh, that's still water. What an amazing provision of God. And other times be like, wow, that really was a valley of the shadow of death. Um, Sometimes you'd be like, wow, he was surrounded by his enemies, but God was with him. That's so true. Other times that was a path of righteousness that God took him along. So you can do some of that matching, but however far through his life he was when he wrote this, this is the conclusion he says about his whole life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, it's actually even more forceful and certain uh, than that translation gives it, because you could say it like this, only goodness and steadfast love shall pursue me all the days of my life. So the word follow is much more often translated as pursue. It's the word that's used to describe what Pharaoh does to the Israelites. He lets them go and then he changes his mind. He says, no, I want to recapture them. And it says Pharaoh pursued them. Didn't just kind of follow them. It's like, oh, I'll catch up with them eventually. No, he went after them. And it's the word that's used to describe what Saul did to David when, they were ch- when he was chasing him around the mountain. Saul's not like, it'd be nice to bump into David one day. He's like, no, I'm getting him. And so David is using that word to give a real sense of urgency and energy and certainty to what's going to happen. The message says, your beauty and love chase after me every day of my life. Every day. (coughs) Now, this is poetry. So we have to be careful not to force it into saying something that it isn't saying. Like, well, does David li- li- does he literally mean every second of every day? Is that, was this like a mathematical thing, or was it just like a kind of a sweeping generalization? So we're quite used to, aren't we? And certainly in the UK, at the moment, we we live with discussions of various like referenda and elections, and either side will say that if they get fifty point zero 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 one percent, that is a clear majority for their view. Yeah, okay, there's absolutely no that's clear majority. And so we can use. Is this just one of those kind of sweeping statements? I just don't think David can be saying, you know, more days than not. That doesn't sound like that, does it? Is it that he's just looked back on all of his life? And as he's looked back on it, he's like, wow, yeah, just every day God has been been so clearly, obviously, evidently good to me. It can be really helpful for us to do that. It can be helpful for us to see the story that God has been telling with our lives that wasn't necessarily the story we would have told, but is what he's done. And there's absolutely something about doing that that's really helpful and vital. But I don't think that's what David's doing here. I think David isn't looking at himself. I think David's looking at God. And here's why I think that. So when Israel's God revealed himself to Moses, it's a moment in Exodus, and 
God says, I'm going to show you my glory. And God goes past where Moses is. And although Moses can't see anything, he hears things. Things are said about God by God. And that is a revelation of who God is. And it's it's a moment that really reverberates throughout the rest of Israel's history and all through their writings. It was a definitive moment. And what God says is this. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, this statement as a whole, if you refer to a part of it, as one of the Old Testament writers, you are bringing all of it to mind. So there there are certain people, aren't there? If you say, you just say their name, there's many things you know about that person, but they'll bring certain things straight to your attention. And that's kind of what's happening here. So if you talk about the Lord, you're saying, the Lord, of whom all of this is true. And David does this. David makes two really big connections in his psalm to this moment. The first is calling God by the name Yahweh. He does that at the start and the end of the psalm. When we have it translated as the Lord, that's, that's this. And also in our verse we're looking at, he talks about steadfast love. Hesed is the Hebrew word. Now, that involves the idea of mercy, but honestly, this is the only place in most modern translations where that word is translated as mercy, and I think it's just because that's what we're used to. It's just not used anywhere else. What it's always, almost always used for is steadfast love. And so when you know that that's the word that's there, you can then connect it to this definitive revelation of who God is in Exodus 34, that he is a God who is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeps steadfast love for thousands. So that is the characteristic that God wanted to emphasize. It's in the middle of the whole thing, and he says it twice. That's how God wants to get your attention on it and believe it. And that name and that characteristic are foundational to Israel's understanding of their God. And everything else that God said to Moses in that moment flows from this. And it wasn't just God saying, today, I feel like this. And this is who I am today. Or one day, I will be like that. And bear with me as we get there. (coughs) Doesn't say those things. This is who God always is. Every day, he is merciful, which means he doesn't treat people as they deserve. Every day, he is gracious, which means he treats them as they don't deserve. Every day, he is slow to anger. Every day, he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. He never runs out or even runs low of those things. It requires no concentration, no effort for him to be like this. It's like, okay, right, I've got to work that up again. No, he's, he's just, he is that. He's the source of all of it, and he abounds in it. And there's no limit on who could receive this because he's eternally like it. He can forgive any kind of wrong. He is always just. Any day, every day. Now, we're not eternal, so we struggle <laughs> to deal with this concept. We suspect that he's changeable, like us. And you would never say that. Certainly if you've been a Christian for a while, you'd never be like, oh, no, no. 
But when you think that you might catch him on an off day, yeah, maybe it's like someone on you know, Instagram or whatever, and they don't always look great, but if they're putting a photo on Instagram, they look great. And it may take them a while to get that ready, and there may be lots of other shots that you're not going to see, but the, the, the one thing they're going to let you see is them at their best. And they hide all the bad photos and all the bad moods. And kind of people have got a bit sick of this. So a few years ago, there was an app launch called Be Real, and it became really popular last year, because what it does is it sends you a notification at a random moment in the day and says, you have to upload a selfie in the next two minutes. And so you can't prepare. And therefore, you're going to be more, you know, real. You could see God at any time of any day in any era of history, and he would be exactly like he says to Moses here. Exactly as David said that he was. Exactly as Jesus revealed who he was to us. It says in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. He's always like that. And that means that for us, we actually have even more confidence than David did in God or in who God is because we know that God's mercy and grace are so great. His steadfast love is so abounding that he sent his son to die that we might receive those things. That he loves people so much that he will heal them, that he will set them free, that he will save them that he can forgive any and all sins and yet still be just because Jesus dealt with them on the cross. And that the thousands who Moses said received that, who Moses heard receiving that steadfast love are in fact thousands of millions from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that all these things are still true today because Jesus rose from the dead and is alive now and forevermore and is the same yesterday, today and forever. So that's David's logic. That's what he's saying, saying this is what God has said about himself, and so this is how I will understand my life. So he doesn't come to this conclusion solely based on what's happening, but by God's character. And if that was true for David, how much more should it be true for those of us here who have seen and believed in Jesus and all that Jesus has done? Much more, surely. Yeah? Maybe, hopefully. Now, of course, David had desperately dark days. And you can read about those too in his story and in the Psalms, where he will say things to God like, where are you? And why is this happening? And when is this going to stop? And would you just help? Plenty of the prophets in the Old Testament say similar things. And even then into the New Testament, We read Paul saying of one time where he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So how do we consider our own lives when we hear David say that goodness and steadfast love chase after him all the time? Do we say, yes, that is right. Everything is all good. But that can be pretending, can't it? 
That's actually often a living in unreality of saying, this awful thing, it's good, because goodness and mercy, they're chasing after me, so it must be good. I don't care. No, it's good. Or do we say, there's nothing good happening. This, just, this verse just isn't right. Again, many of the believers of, in Jesus here would feel, you know, intellectually, I can't go there, but emotionally, I do sometimes go there, and then I'm not sure what to do. Because, you know, we talk about the Bible being true, but then my experience in the Bible, how, do I, how does that work? And there are always evidences of God's goodness, if we're able to see them. Do we say, I know that this negative situation is about to be turned around, and then I'll see how God was doing me good all the way along. But what if it doesn't get turned around? Do we say, well, goodness and steadfast love may be chasing me, but they haven't caught up with me yet. (laughs) And cynicism just easily becomes this bitter unbelief. And we basically give up on God being involved. And we hear verses like this and think, maybe if you're young. So none of those options seem, they don't seem to deal with it, do they? They don't seem to, they don't seem to sound both faithful and an understanding of what life is like. So could we learn over time and with help from others to say something like this? I've seen the goodness and the steadfast love of God in Christ. If he was like that then, even unto death on a cross, for me, then I believe he's like that now. I don't understand all of what's going on. Some of it I may never understand. Sometimes I groan with the pain of it all and I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. And giving up seems easier. But this I know. God's spirit is with me. Jesus did die for me. God has chosen me to be his child and save me and is growing me and will bring me to be with him in glory. And I cannot be separated from his love in Christ Jesus. I think that is hard-won faith. It doesn't ignore the wrong things and the evil things, and the complicated things, and the unexplained things, but it doesn't get overwhelmed by them either. It doesn't short-circuit the process of getting to that point of faith, but it doesn't stop short of it either. And I think we tend to do either of those things usually. It is also, I will admit, a lot less poetic than what David said. (laughs) So maybe our next memorization challenge after Psalm 23 should be Romans 8, which is where basically everything I just said there kind of comes from, only it's longer. <laughs> but for me, that's, that is what is in my mind when I, when I say, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And when I sing it, that's what I'm thinking. I know that's because I think a lot, but that's... That, I can sing those short lines and feel that whole deep, broad truth. 
It's why when we sing the song, you know, the one with the, the bridge, you're never going to let me down. Just so you know, I'm always, always having to control myself not to jump up and explain to you, you know, it's true, but here's all the ways you may be experiencing that right now, but it is still true, but blah, blah, you know. So we can believe this in this way, I think. And I think that's what God wants us to do. So wherever he went, whatever he did, David believed it and he made it a part of his celebration of God's goodness. And then there's the final phrase. And this is where he kind of turns from movement into into rest. And he actually makes the clinching argument for everything he said. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or I shall return to dwell in the house of the Lord for length of days. Now, the construction of that first version makes it feel like David is saying, at the end of this, I'll be with God. And that is vitally true. We'll get back to that in a moment. But he's actually focusing on the present. So he's saying that he can at any time during his current travels, whatever's going on in his life, he says, I can be with God in God's house. I I shall return. I can do it. I can be here. I can be there. And then I can come back to God. Why is he so excited about that? Does he just love singing or community or, I don't know, something like that? Well, the house of the Lord was a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to refer to the place where God made his presence especially known. And it was originally a tent. That's what it was in David's day uh, called the tabernacle. Later it becomes, it's, it's, it's made surrounded by a temple Instead, and within that, there is this holy space where God comes to be. And David just, he just loves that place. Why? He says in Psalm 26, verse 8, verse 8, that it's where God's glory dwells. So if you think whatever impresses you, whatever you've ever looked at and gone, wow, if you just magnify that by infinity, That is the glory and the greatness of God. It's like when you experience the rays of sun as heat, which happens sometimes, you think, wow, this is great. And what on earth must it be like over there where that has come from? That's what glory is. It's the radiating out of the goodness of God. He says in Psalm 27 verse 4 that it's where God's beauty can be seen. The absolute loveliness and faultlessness and supremacy of God. Take your breath away. Stir your heart. Amazing. He says in Psalm 36, verse 8, that it's the place of abundance because all things belong to God and God's really generous. And so to come to be where God is, is to receive abundantly. Another psalmist says that even the smallest of creatures can find a home there. And so how much more can any of the rest of us? It's a place, Psalm 92 says, where God's people are gathered together and where they flourish and grow fruitful. See, plants and stuff that are put in places of of essentially death, they will wither and die. Put them in somewhere that's full of life, they will grow and flourish. And the psalmists say, "That's that's what God's house is like. You put a person in God's house, they will flourish. They will grow. They will be fruitful and do others good. Psalm 93 verse 5 says, it is the holy place. It's set apart. So all the rest of the world, with all its compromises, with all its mess, with all its dirt, not there. Because that's where God is and he banishes those things from his presence. It is so amazing. Psalm 84 verse 10 says that the least of it is worth a thousand times the best of anywhere else. 
Those are some of the things that David and the other psalmists say about God's house. All of the places that David has been and known God's goodness with him, the green valleys, the righteous paths, even um, the dark death valleys. He looked back and went, no, I knew God with me in all of those places. This is better than any of them. Here is where God is in a way that is unlike anywhere else on earth. And God has told David that the door is always open. They can always come in. Psalm 5 verse 7 says, due to your, uh, the abundance of your steadfast love, that word again, I will come into your house. And so David says, whatever else I have to do, wherever else I go, whomever else goes with me, I can always return here. And here is where he is. And so here is the best. Now, there's no tent anymore, nor is there temple. So how do Christians understand this? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus describes himself as greater than the temple. Which, when you've just heard all of that, is quite the claim. Greater than all the psalmists say? Yes. Because here's what the tent and the temple pointed to. He is the glory and the beauty of God for all to see. He is the one who gives with abundance, who gives so generously that he gives his whole life for us. He is the one who welcomes any who come to him. He's the one who causes people to flourish and be fruitful, even in the most unpromising of situations. He is holy in every way. You can't find a fault with him. And it's not just negative, he never does anything wrong. It's positive, he is everything beautifully perfect. It is better to be with him than anyone else. And how wonderful that all this goodness, all this greatness is no longer um, kind of hidden away from most people behind the walls in that most holy place. But God's plan has further to go. Because as he leaves, Jesus sends his presence, his Holy Spirit, to be with each person who believes in him. And now there are places all over the world where God's spirit is, where all those wonderful things can be said because Christians individually and as communities are where the presence of God now dwells. And still there's more to come because one day Jesus will return and he will unite all things in heaven and on earth in himself and there will no longer be any separation between God and his people. And a promise that was said in the Old Testament will be fulfilled. Now the dwelling of God is with man. And so all that the psalmists say about the tent and the temple, all that the Gospels tell us about Jesus, all that the Bible promises about the Holy Spirit in us will come to pass. And there will be no sin in us or around us to spoil it in any way. There will be no doubts and disagreements between us. There will be no tears, no wars, no griefs anymore. There will be no need for explanations of exactly how we currently experience God's goodness and steadfast love. You won't need that anymore because you'll be experiencing it so completely and fully again and again and again and again. It will be a place of deep rest. Rest meaning, it's done, but also 
of fulfilling work, a city, we're told, bustling with purpose and humming with community and revealing the full possibilities of people made in the image of God. And creation will be renewed and laid out to be explored for all its astonishing variety and magnificence, all of which will point to its creator, who will be at the centre of it all. Illuminating and animating and sustaining everything. And we'll see him as that fully. God himself. Exactly who he declared himself to be to Moses and who David sang about and who Jesus showed us. We will see him, the Bible says, face to face. And we will know him and see him as he currently knows and sees us. This is the Christian hope. And that's why those who believe in Jesus can end this psalm by singing, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because it will be. And so, as we end this series, I just want to encourage you to put your hope in this and nothing else. Understand everything by this. However good or bad our days in this life are, however hard or wonderful the seasons we work through, God's goodness is certain for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our hope isn't based on the present so much as the past, Jesus living and dying and raising to our new life and the future. And he will return to make all things new. And because those two incredible truths, we can live by faith today. We can trust in his goodness We can share it confidently with others as well. Because there's nothing and no one like this. Let's say this psalm together one more time. Let's say this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy, steadfast love, shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever.